Surgery Center listeners. Welcome to our Excellentia podcast, Surgery Center Chat, session number four, actually. I'm Kathy Montgomery, president of Excellentia Advisory Group, and I have with me today Roger Manning. Hi, everyone. Roger, you've been telling me about how the Fair Labor Standards Act, otherwise known as FLSA, has really been a hotbed of court cases for small businesses lately. What is going on that our surgery center audience would want to know about just to keep them safe? Kathy, yes, that that is right. The Department of Labor, who oversees the Fair Labor Standards Act, or FLSA, as you just said, feels that in the United States that about 70% of small businesses are in FLSA violation. That's an amazingly large number when you think about it and think about its true significance. By that, I mean if you were going down the street, 7 out of 10 small businesses, or let's say potentially 7 out of 10 surgery centers in your town would be violating the law when it comes to paying their employees. You may ask, how do they know or why do they feel that way? Well, it's because they... DOL is conducting audits and investigations that are usually instigated by a disgruntled employee or an ex-employee that feels that they were not paid correctly or not paid overtime or have similar allegations of mistreatment. And they might be a whistleblower and imply that others in a company are treated similarly. So once the DOL investigates, they find that about 70% of the time allegations were correct. Fines were levied, and so they extrapolate that. It must be, you know, that large of a problem. You may be thinking that you've never been investigated, and why should it happen now, and why should you worry about it now? Do they have nothing to do but make surprise visits on companies? And if so, you've been pretty lucky so far. So what's the worry? Well, they don't normally conduct surprise visits like the Department of Health does with surgery centers, but it takes something to tip them off. Another way that you could be investigated is if you were audited by another federal agency, and let's say you didn't have your personnel files properly properly organized, and that's how it got you into the situation. During, let's say, an Immigration and Customs Enforcement investigation, by the way, they're known as ICE, uh, they have the opportunity to see employee files, which they shouldn't normally be able to look at because you didn't separate the I-9s out of the employee file like the law tells you to do. Well, the federal agencies talk to each other particularly if they find lots of deficiencies in their own department's investigation. They assume that, well, there are probably other deficiencies. And the DOL, which has many sub-departments to it, talk to the departments of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So they let them know, hey, I was in this place and this is what I find. Perhaps you uh, should check them out. Most commonly, once an audit is underway with a small business, what they usually find is misclassification of employees, which results in violations of paying proper overtime. The other discovery is many employers are confused as what the difference is between an employee and a 1099 contractor. So I wanted to discuss this today because our client base is heavily focused on the surgery center industry of which There are many small businesses with about 60% of them still so being privately physician-owned. Yeah, absolutely. Now, for the sake of grins here, what do you mean by misclassification of employees? Sure. The uh, FLSA is a law that establishes minimum wage, overtime pay, and proper record-keeping standards, which affect the employees in the private sector, but it also applies to the government. So the law speaks to the issue as to who is eligible for overtime pay and who is not. There are two categories of employees, those that are non-exempt and they are eligible for overtime pay, 
and those who are exempt and not eligible for overtime pay. So where misclassification occurs is that many small business owners, perhaps physician owners in our audience, our employees feel that uh, they get to decide as to who is exempt versus non-exempt. They really don't. The law does. They either don't know that there are FLSA rules that apply to classifying the employee, or they don't care and ignore those rules or guidelines. Commonly, you will get an employer who doesn't want to pay overtime, so they will make the employee exempt, even though the employee clearly should not be exempt, due to the three tests of exemption. You see, to be exempt, an employee must pass not just one, but all three of these exemption tests that are uh, mandated by the law. Okay, well, help us out here and tell us, uh, walk us through this exemption test. Okay, so first there is a salary level test. An employee can be exempt if they are paid $23,600 per year, and that comes out to $455 per week precisely. Many states have their own minimum wage laws, however, so be advised on that. But again, by itself, this one test does not make the employee exempt if they make over 455 per week. Second, there is a salary basis test. An exempt employee has a guaranteed minimum pay that is not reduced if he or she works fewer than the normal number of hours per week or per month. And then lastly, or third, there is a duties test. Exempt job duties would make this employee either an executive or managerial type person, a professional, professional salesperson, or administrative. And there actually is a high salary technology uh, category as well for those folks that uh, can are making high salaries. Um, so to be exempt, you must pass each of these three tests. So let me give you an example that might make this clear. So if Susie is doing administrative assistant type duties for the surgery center, such as typing, filing, answering the phone, and then Dr. Jones doesn't want to have to pay her any overtime and thus makes the decision to make Susie exempt, then she is misclassified. She or may not be making over the $450 per week, but she is not managing people or managing duties of significance to the overall operations of the company. So, and if Dr. Jones gets upset because Susie only works uh, seven hours today, he cannot dock her one hour of pay if he has classified her as exempt. Only non-exempt employees are paid exactly the hours they work. The only exception to docking exempt employees, by the way, would be if they did not work the full eight-hour day for personal reasons. But you cannot dock exempt employees for a partially worked day. The other point about the duties test is qualification for exemption is based upon the actual job duties, not the job title or job description. You see, Dr. Jones might decide, well, to get around that, I'm going to call Susie the center manager. But if Susie is not carrying out the center manager duties and responsibilities, then she would be considered misclassified by the Department of Labor under the FLSA. Executive or management exemption has to have the primary duty of managing the business or managing the department or subdivision of the business. Managing two or more people is usually considered managerial, and by managing people we mean that they are regularly directing the work of the employee and that the employees are full-time. This person would have the authority to discipline, hire, fire, and or at least make the recommendation to Dr. Jones or some hiring authority in the company. So also in Susie's case, if she would be classified as administrative exempt, then she would have to be paid at least the $455 per week. Her primary duties is non-manual work directly related to the management or the general business operations of the employer or the owner. So this is sometimes where in large companies we see assistants 
to the presidents as exempt employees. Yeah, I, Roger, I can see where this might be a problem at some of our surgery centers. Um, what other misclassification examples can you give us? Well, the other misclassification category that employers are taken to court with is calling people that are truly independent contractors or 1099s, they call them employees. I may have even slipped up in the past uh, calling our 1099s an employee. They're not an employee. Independent contractors many times take an employer to court because they're confused about the relationship. And they feel that everything indicates that they're employees based upon the treatment that they're receiving. They're even called employees and may be paid like exempt are non-exempt employees, but they aren't getting the other benefits of being an employee. Where you would most commonly see this happen in a surgery center would be when the surgery center creates its own PRN nurse pool, and then allowing a PRN nurse to come to work and request that she wants to be paid as a 1099, or the owner of the surgery center insists that this employee would be paid as a 1099 because they don't want to take out the taxes or have the workers' comp liability. The law says that the employer, nor that employee, gets to make such a determination or request. Where many centers get around this issue is by employing PRN nurses from temporary staffing companies or travel nurse organizations that act as the employer. They are the employer. The nurse is paid by the outside company and taxes are withheld by the outside company. Also, with many small businesses, they'll utilize services of a PEO. I don't know if you're familiar with the PEO or not, but they're a professional employer organization. The employee is recruited and offered employment by the surgery center, but the employee is turned over to the PEO for employment, and then the PEO leases back the employee to the surgery center. The PEO takes out taxes and offers benefit plans to its clients that can pick from the menu of items, and the PEO, PEO is known as the employer of record. So in this situation, the surgery center management team can provide regular management interface to the employee without violating the law. All major disciplinary action up to termination must be done, however, through consultation with the PEO HR department since they are the employer of record. The PEO organization usually provides human resource training. So again, just another note on this, uh, many times employers using PEO organizations, if they make a a a termination of the employee without consultant with that PEO HR department, uh, could potentially uh, get themselves in trouble because the PEO should have been the one doing it. So getting back to the independent contractors 1099s, they also have a 20-point factor test. If the surgery center is doing any of these things on the 20-point factor list, then they are treating them like an employee and they should be made an employee or the employer needs to stop treating them as an employee before they get sued. The issue, though, with surgery center PRN nurses is that you really have to treat them like an employee because you have to provide guidance to them. They have to be integrated into the surgical team, and thus an employer, as an employer, uh, you're, you're doing most of the things on that 20-point list. So they are not independent contractors if you're providing instructions, you're providing training, you're integrating them into the team, uh, perhaps you're doing things that uh, integrates them into the culture. They go to events, parties. Um, you're providing personal services to them, such as giving them their scrubs or uniforms, uh, tools of the trade. You're providing meals. You're certainly setting the hours of work or the schedule that they're working. Uh, you may request them to work full time, even though they're PRN. Doing, you know, they're doing obviously all the work on your, uh, your premises because they're in your operating room. And uh, you may be requesting that they follow a certain order or sequence of events in your organization. All of those things 
uh, with what a, an employer doing, including providing oral or written reports. They have to do nurses' notes. They have to do reports. Uh, you're certainly paying them by the hour instead of by the, the project, uh, and you have the right to terminate them uh, as an employee. But as a uh, 1099, you would just end their services, not terminate employment. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. If you want to learn more about today's subject matter or other human resource topics, we would like to direct you to our View Upon Demand training library on our website. Go to www.excellentiagroup.com. Roger's five most recent webinar will be recorded and made available for View Upon Demand convenience. All presentations will be part of the All Access e-membership program along with over 100 more presentations on regulatory compliance and infection prevention training. If you would like to learn more about becoming an e-member, please call us at 636-875-5088. Okay, well, um, you mentioned earlier allegations of not being paid correctly for overtime. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I, I am worried that some of us might be incorrectly doing that. Yes, yeah, sure. When a disgruntled employee, or most likely an ex-employee, files with the wage in our division. They might be saying a couple things. First, they uh, they have misclassified me and I should have been receiving overtime. And if it was that case, the employer will lose the court case and have to pay back overtime and perhaps a fine on top of it. Number two, if wage and hour does conduct that investigation and finds that, that non-exempt employees were paid overtime but not calculated correctly, then they would have to pay back overtime and perhaps another fine. Well, now, wait a minute. What do you mean by not calculated properly? I'm glad you asked because this is something that I fear that many managers uh, get wrong. I know this wasn't taught to me uh, correctly in the beginning, and I learned about it later in my career. So let me let me explain this. You know that the non-exempt employee has to be paid time and one half for all time work over the 40 hours per week. But here are a couple issues. First, overtime is calculated on a weekly basis and cannot be carried over to another week or calculated on a bi-weekly or monthly basis. Second, a very important point to note and jot down today. Overtime must be calculated on the regular rate of pay, including all forms of remuneration for that work week, such as the inclusion of commissions or bonuses. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Well, let me, let me give you a good example. Johnny, the materials manager at your surgery center, gets paid $400 a week or $10 an hour, and he worked 40 hours per week to get that. Johnny worked four overtime hours this particular week, so he would get paid another four hours times $15, which is time and a half, or $60 for a grand total of $460 that week. Follow me so far? Not not a big deal, correct? Now it gets a little more complicated. Johnny is receiving this week a merit bonus during this week's payroll, and the bonus was for $100. Johnny is eligible to receive overtime now based on his earnings of $400 plus $100. His new rate of pay this week is the $500 divided by 40 hours and is now $12.50 an hour instead of the $10 an hour. His overtime rate is now $18.75 rather than the $15 that we calculated before. This week's overtime portion is $18.75 times four hours for a total of $75. So Johnny's paycheck with bonus and overtime this week would be $575. Any employer that incurs hours and wage audit and investigation will be found guilty if they're not paying overtime in this manner. 
and they will have to pay back overtime with interest and fines for not doing correctly. So hours and wage really likes to make examples out of employers in court for not doing this correctly. So before we leave today's podcast, I want to address another issue which I briefly touched on earlier in my example, and that is the I-9 form. Probably no one in our podcast audience has ever been audited by ICE because in the years past, they have been really busy in other industries, the agriculture, lawn services, and small manufacturers. They typically were the industries that were bringing in questionable, uh, perhaps illegal uh, employees. Let me tell you, though, that Immigration and Customs Enforcement has made lots of money levying fines to those that uh, they've investigated over the past few years, and they are reinvesting that money into more ICE agents. Lovely. President Trump has also allocated lots of resources, you may have heard, into the uh, uh, ICE program, and they now have time to venture into other industries now that they've exhausted their efforts elsewhere, like the agricultural industry. So you never have been investigated. Well, neither have I. Similar to my earlier example, you will have greater chance of being investigated if you don't do all the things correctly in HR, like proper employee classification, no harassment lawsuits, or other allegations in proper record keeping or anything where one government entity would tip off the other because they got to look into your files and didn't like what they saw. If the Department of Labor is conducting an investigation and they see something at your surgery center that the DOL agent might think the ICE agent would want to know about, then a call could be made. Okay, I think I've made my point on that because I've said that before. What I want to teach you a little bit about, though, is how to properly administrate the the I-9 form to keep your surgery center out of trouble. So first of all, you've got to retain all your employees' completed forms, the I-9 form, for the length of their employment. Secondly, when an individual employment is terminated, that I-9 form is retained for either one of two reasons, three years after the date of hire, are one year after the date of employment is terminated, and that is whichever is later. Keep your I-9 forms separate from the employee personnel file. Either individually put them in a folder or perfectly okay to put all the I-9s into a single folder or put them into a binder. They must be completely filled out to the instructions of the I-9 form or you will be fine. Use the most recent I-9 form or you'll be fined. You can go out and Google that, get it on the website, and uh, get the most current one. Don't save up one from five years ago and use it. Per the Immigration and Reform Control Act of 1986, which is also called IRCA, these are all mandated. They're out there clearly, and you will be fined if you don't follow it. Believe it or not, um, I want you to pay attention. These are some very important points that you need to know as well, or you'll be fine. There's already been companies fine. Some of them sound ridiculous, but it is the law. There is a Spanish I-9 that was designated to be used only by Puerto Rico. Do not use that Spanish I-9 form for the continental United States. Spanish-speaking citizens, you will be fine. If the I-9 is incomplete or missing, you must update it before it's discovered by the ICE audit. If it's incomplete or missing, you will be fine. Do not use abbreviations on the form. I used to, years ago, use signature stamps. I found out that uh, that is illegal. You will be fine. So don't use signature stamps. Do not use those stamps that have your company uh, name and address on them. They want this all handwritten out. Do not leave boxes blank. You'll be fine. If you have more than one company that your employee is hired by, so in other words, I mean if the clinic next door has an employee that's hired there, and you're also hiring them for the surgery center, they must have separate employee files, and they must have separate I-9s. 
If you use E-Verify, only need the M775. Some states like California and South Carolina mandate that you use E-Verify, but it's not mandated in all states. If the employee started employment with you before 1986, you don't have to worry about the I-9. That You're grandfathered on that. So, man, I'm, uh, I've done a lot of talking. Well, Kathy, I think I've completed everything that I uh, wanted to present to you today to our Fine Surgery Center folks, so uh, that's a wrap for me. Well, appreciate it. Clearly, this should help everyone decipher how they have their employees set up. I have to admit, when I go on site and perform mock surveys, I see some of the infractions that Roger mentioned today. So just a word to the wise, I suppose. The five webinars that we mentioned earlier that focus on HR, by the way, those are eligible for AEUs in the category of HR for those of you that are CASC looking for credits. So, well, thanks today for listening, and I hope that you'll join us next week when we're going to catch up on the new proposed rules under CMS. That's a wrap for today. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to find us on Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify, and subscribe so you can get updates whenever we release our new episodes.